The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. More information about the church is available at www.gracefcwesterville.org. Well, we're finishing chapter 17 uh, this morning. It didn't take us too long. Not too long. But uh, as you know, the chapter is divided into three sections. Verses 1 through 5, Jesus prays about himself and his glory. Or, excuse me, verses 1 through 5. Verses 6 through 19, he prays for his disciples and those that are with him. And then in the remaining verses, we saw that he is praying specifically for you and me. As he said, that I pray not only for those that are here, but for those that will believe because of their word. And last week, we finished up with a truth that I still personally struggle to grasp. It was in verse 23. And if you recall, verse 23 said, Jesus prayed, I and them and you and me that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them as you loved me. And the, the, the truth of that phrase in the Greek, it says, just as or to the same degree. And I still struggle to get my head around the fact that me, a sinner, a rebellious sinner, that God the Father could love me as he loves Jesus. And you begin to understand the reality of why Jesus was so willing to come to earth to die because he wanted to glorify the Father because the Father loved us. He came for us to rescue us. That truth is so mind-boggling. But again, this morning we pick up with an equally mind-boggling idea. In verse 24, he continues to pray. He says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. So not only does God the Father love us so immensely, but then Jesus says, Father, I want him to be with me to see the glory that you gave me before the foundation of the world. So as you understand the love of the God that he has for us, And then start to pack that up in the reality that Jesus is just as excited to have us with him to experience the glory. That truth alone ought to just take whatever problems you're dealing with and just put them in their proper perspective. Because we have an all-knowing, all-loving, omniscient God who came to rescue. And so many have been at the bedside of one whose life was ebbing away and and had this sinking feeling as they were sinking away. But to the Christian, the reality is, is that they are actually ascending into the presence of God. Millions of people spent a lifetime striving to arrive at positions of great influence and power only to realize that death, it's all gone. The unfortunate thing is that there are many Christians who do the same thing. They take Christ as their Savior, but then spend their lives doing the best they can to be what they think they should be and never allow the Spirit of God to lead them. So let's take a few moments here and look at this victory in death. Why is the experience of death for a Christian so different from that of a non-Christian? It's, it's not because of something meritorious in the Christian. The difference is to be found only in the will of God, who has decreed 
that the death of a Christian shall not be a tragedy, but be a triumph. Paul spoke of his willingness to be absent from the body when he said in 2 Corinthians 5.8, Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Then in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, he said, For me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Everything about Paul was for Christ. Even when he was making tents to earn money to get himself around his travels, doing the secular job, if you will, as you and I do, he did it all for the glory of God. But he says, even though that's all glorious, it's Christ, but to gain is to leave is to die, is to great gain. Paul also shared a conflict in his own mind in Philippians 1.23. He said, I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. So you begin to understand that these disciples who serve God, they walk through deep waters and they live for Christ knowing the prize that was there for them, knowing what they were aiming to and where they were headed. And then, of course, how can we forget Paul's statement in Romans chapter 8 when he talks about the immense security that we have in verses 35 through 39. He said, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sakes we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Life is tough. But Jesus said earlier in John, He said, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And so Paul continues in verse 37, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's your Savior. You are secured. In the Old Testament, even Job made this comment, Job 19, verse 25 through 27, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last He will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God, whom I shall see for myself. And my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. And so all of this is what our John chapter 17 passage is talking about. It's on the same level here. And so let me just read verse 24 again. With all of this, Jesus says, Father, I desire that they will be with me, whom you have given me, that they may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me, before the foundation of the world. So that problem that you're wrestling with, it's already been defeated. The key for us is to live in that light, to live in the light of the power of Jesus Christ. So then there's this important fact for us to get down. The triumph of a believer in death is often spoken of in Scripture, But here it receives its real foundation and true emphasis. Its its foundation is seen in the basis that uh, that it's done in the expressed will of God the Son 
and God the Father, and their wills are one. Its emphasis is seen in that this is the last of Jesus' great petitions of the Father before the crucifixion. The last thing he asks, the last thing he wills before his arrest is that you and I be with him. Now, if that doesn't grab your heart, I don't know what will. The last thing he wills, the last thing he cries out to God before his arrest is that you and I will be with him to experience his glory. He wants to share it with you. He wants you to know the immense joy that is waiting for us when we surrender to him. And that is a major thing. So where is Jesus? Well, it's obvious that Jesus is about to leave this world and return to glory. That's precisely where Jesus is at this moment. And how do we know? Well, we certainly know because of his own words and what he stated, but we also know uh, because of the uh, witness of the ascension by the disciples and the angels. Because in Acts chapter 1, verse 11, the angel said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go to heaven. We also have the vision of Christ in glory as seen by Stephen, recorded in Acts chapter 7, and then, of course, recorded in Revelation. These passages are rich and provide us with the reality that awaits us. That is, it's the fact that it is where God is and God the Son, God the Father is, that makes it heaven. And we will be with him. So this is the focal point of Revelation chapter 5. These are brought forward not to give us a description of, the pres- of those that are praising him in heaven, but because of all those praising, giving testimony to Jesus Christ. And it serves to give us an understanding of what's going on. Uh, the first song is a a song of praise given in Revelation 5, verses 9 through 10. The four and twenty elders are singing the song, and they say in verse 9, and they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seal. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and a priest to our God, and they shall reign on earth. Then the angels give their testimony, which is the basis for a very popular song. In fact, Dan played it for our offertory this morning. It's found in Revelation 5, verse 12, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then at the last, in verse 13, the remaining creatures join in. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Heaven is where God is, and that's what makes it heaven. And you and I will be with him if we've trusted Christ as our Savior. That's an amazing thing that should encourage each one of us. So where will we be? Where will we be? I think we've made it clear, but... The first thing we note about this particular text is that Jesus is now in heaven in the presence of the Father. It's what he meant when he said, where I am. We must also note that this is where we shall be if we have truly been given to Christ. This is the major point of the verse, for Jesus mentions his departure to heaven 
only to say that it's his desire that we join him there when our work here on earth is complete. So this is what makes heaven real to us, and it's what gives us the real comfort to get us through every day. Paul was one who had a vision of heaven. Uh, He described it obliquely at one point when he described his own being there in the third person as if he was talking about someone else. In 2 Corinthians 12, 2 through 4, he says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up in the third heaven, whether in body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which may not be uttered. You see, here's a man who saw heaven and could have described it to us in detail, but he doesn't do it. Because as Paul comes to speak about death later on, he says that Christ in heaven overshadows any description that we could have. You see, as men and women, we're prone in our human flesh to think about streets of gold and mansions and all the things that all the songs have been written about for so many years and those little things that we read. But heaven is where God the Father is and where Jesus Christ the Son is. And that's where you and I are going to be. That is what heaven ought to be to us. That should be the thing that focuses and draws us into all this. We shall be with Jesus. That is the promise and the glory. And it's what should fill our minds to think about the days and life to come. Secondly, we should encourage each other with these words. We should be, we were going to be with Jesus. This should be the encouraging words that come from our lips. You know, there are funerals that I have to do from time to time. And when I know the person is saved, I have such a privilege to share with them that great truth, that they are with Jesus. And you will be too if you trust Christ like they did. We should encourage each other with these words. In fact, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, the, the great passage about the coming rapture, the verse 18, he ends the, the chapter by saying, therefore, encourage one another with these words. It should be part of this whole prayer that Jesus is praying when he says that you and I would be one as he and the Father are one so that the world will know that Jesus, that God sent Jesus. Our unity is an immense witness to the world. And when you and I in unity can share the joy, even in a funeral, of knowing, hey, man, we're, we're sad now. They're, they're not with us, but we will see them again. What an immense joy that we have. What an immense joy. Just uh, the week or so ago when, when Marilyn's aunt passed away and we couldn't get down there right away, it was okay because we know we'll see her again. After 60 years on the mission field, uh, I'm sure she's still talking up there about what happened. But that's the way they were. That's the way they are. And because of their faith in Christ, we can comfort everyone that we'll be with them again. What a great encouragement it is to us. So here's another truth in all of this that really begins to drive this home. And that is the fact that we shall be like him. We often say that the only comfort for a Christian about dying is knowing that he will be with Jesus. 
But while this is true and is a major comfort, there's more. Because the additional fact is that when we see Jesus, we shall be like him. Listen to 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2. He says, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we shall be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we will see him as he is. Now, there are many ways in which we will be like him. First of all, in character. For the day with all the sin and ignorance and craziness that's characterized our life will give way to that perfect life. We will be like him in love because we will love as we've been loved. We will be like him in holiness, in wisdom, in truth, in mercy. We shall be like him. And so the culmination of this amazing plan, when God first created Adam and Eve in the garden to be fellowship with with God, and they sinned, and that whole thing was destroyed, and we were separated. Now, having accepted him as Savior, that relationship is renewed. And we're so important to God that it's not only renewed, but we're sealed. It's like God said, look, this is my plan. You blew it the first time. You're not getting away this time. You can't lose your salvation because the Bible says that we are sealed until the day of redemption. It is his spirit that indwells us and seals us and guides us into all truth. And you and I should be able to comfort one another with these immense words. Consider what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, verses 15 through chapter 5, verse 4. He says, For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient or temporal, but the things that are unseen are eternal. For we know that if this tent, that is our earthly home or our body, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up in life. And that is true life. That's what awaits us. And so Paul was making it clear, look, life is tough. You and I live in a sin-cursed world. Bad things happen to good people. It's just because of where we are and who we are. We have frail bodies that are sin-cursed. We get sick. But the glory is that this is not our home. This is not the end. Because one day we shall be with him and see him as he is. Now, I think it's possible that when Paul penned these words, that he was not in good health. We know he suffered quite a bit. 
But I want you to just listen to what Paul says about his ministry. Because in 2 Corinthians 6, 5, he experienced beatings and imprisonments and riots and labors and sleepless nights and hunger. Wow, what a life. Who wants to sign up for it? He goes on to say in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 24 through 27, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers and dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, dangers from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Wow! Isn't serving God great? Who would sign up for that? You know, I've said this in the past, but how often do you hear that preach from the pulpit? Trust God, it may turn out badly. Right? But to Paul, he's just on his way somewhere. He's passing through, and he's going to take as many people with him as he can. And so he gladly endured all of it. Today's church, we get all frustrated when one little thing doesn't go to suit us because we have not allowed the Holy Spirit to possess us and to lead us into the truth He wants to lead us. He then says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 8, Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Who wouldn't want to get away from all the frustration and the struggles? So here is an ultimate fact that we must be in unity on. We will see Jesus and share in his glory because he wants it that way. Remember, the next time somebody rejects you, remember that the next time somebody doesn't want anything to do with you. Remember that the next time things don't go well because the reality is Jesus wants you. I'm reminded of a story that a popular pastor told and many of you have probably heard the story, but before he got into ministry, he he was in school and he'd been witnessing to this single mom who wasn't real excited about Christianity, thought Christians were, you know, strange and hypocrites and she was struggling single mom trying to get through and life had not been kind to her but he got her to come to church to a special meeting one evening and he was a little concerned about it because he knew the pastor there was one of these guys that just you know preached sin and how evil everyone is who sins and that kind of thing but so they came to the meeting and as the meeting began that pastor took a rose and the rose was a beautiful rose big Big, luscious colors, beautiful petals, long stem with leaves. And he handed it to someone at the front. And he said, now, during this message, I want you to pass that rose through the entire congregation, about 250, 300 people. I want everybody to touch it through this service. And so he went on to preach his hellfire message. And, and uh, right at the end for his crescendo, he asked where the rose was and way over here, guy had it he brought it up and handed it to him (laughs) 
and he held this rose up, and it was beat. It had been handled by all these people. It was bent over, the stem was broken, the leaves were off. Many of the petals had fallen off, and it looked a mess. And his great crescendo was, now who would ever love something like this? And his pastor wanted to jump to his feet and cry out, Jesus wants it. Jesus wants that rose. And he wants you if you're broken today. He wants you in whatever state you're in because he loves you. He doesn't love you because you're good. He doesn't love you because you're special, because you've achieved great things. He loves you right where you are. Great, inferior, successful, or broken. There's not a life here this morning that he doesn't love, that he can make you into what he wants you to be if you trust him. And so you and I have this major gift that's been given us. And that life will take on immense joy and beauty when we see him. Because in spite of who we are today, we will be like him when we see him. That ought to encourage every one of us. Well, the key is that we can be like him now. There are some for whom these words are especially meaningful. On the other hand, there are those who are very young and and death is not important. You don't think about death. But we're all going to die unless Jesus comes while we're alive. If it's true that you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ and know eventually you will be with Jesus, then why not be with him now? Shouldn't we want to get to know him better if we're going to be with him forever? Shouldn't we want to be like him now if that's our future? What of our moral conduct? If we're going to be like Jesus one day, as John has stated in 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. You don't have to wait for heaven to start being like Jesus now. See, that's what Paul was writing about. The apostle Paul lived Christ. That's why he said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. As long as he's on this earth, he is living Christ. As long as he's here, he wants Christ to be seen through him. How about that for the goal of every person who walks through the doors of Grace Fellowship Church? Oh, to be like Jesus. And we don't have to wait for glory. We can do it right now. 1 John 3, 3 says, And everyone who thus hopes in him, in him purifies himself as he is pure. God's word purifies. And so if your hope is in Christ this morning, you purify yourselves with these words. You purify yourselves by walking with him. And your witness to everyone around you purifies them as we all come together in unity. And that's one of the reasons Jesus was preaching and praying for unity. Not that just we could be a happy club, but that our unity would be seen by the world because it's the greatest draw the world has is when they see people unified on something, they want to know what's going on. And when they find out it's Christ, they may walk away, but they may not. And that's for God to decide.
So all of this then brings us to the reality that the joy of coming heaven will promote love. He ends the chapter in verses 25 through 26. He prays, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. You want to know how to love that person that really gets under your skin? Love Christ. Love Christ with all your heart. There's nobody you can't love when Christ is at the center. And therein is the unifying factor that will transform your life. We all have people that we would like to go the other way when they come near. But imagine going to that person and allowing Jesus to love through you. I guarantee you, it will transform the both of you. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. You and I have an amazing opportunity because the truth has been revealed. Imagine how love grows when you have an accurate, accurate picture of where you're headed. And all of us who have trusted Christ are headed for eternal victory. That should transform us right now. Are you headed for heaven, folks? Do you know you've been washed in the blood? Have you placed your faith in Jesus Christ? Do you know for certain that if you died today, you would be with him and see him as he is? If you're not sure, please don't leave today without speaking to me or someone here that can show you beyond the shadow of a doubt how you can know where you're headed. Heavenly Father, you are an amazing God. Your love is beyond what we can fully comprehend in this life. Your love we sing about, we preach about, we pray about, but we'll never fully grasp it this side of glory. But one thing we can grasp is to know that we will see you as you are. We know what's coming. I pray this morning that you would transform our lives to live in that reality. And may all of us glorify Jesus Christ every day with whomever we come in contact. May Jesus be seen in us. And all God's people said, Amen. God bless.